It's good to see you. It's good to be back again. I hope it was fun having in some different Acts 29 preachers the last two weeks. We've got some great, great pastors in our network. I hope you saw that at least. Um, and it was good getting to see their people and meet their people. Um, I'm glad to be back here to finish this series before Christmas with you guys. Um, turn in your Bible, if you have one with you or in your app, to John 1. And we're going to be floating around there in Hebrews 1. I'm excited about this sermon today, I guess, this talk we're going to do on Advent. Uh, we've been talking about, and I, I think, yeah, it does say it up there, fully God, fully man, coming again. So the first two weeks were fully God and fully man. That's what the other two gentlemen brought. I'm going to talk to you about how he has come and how he is coming again. The Christmas series, I'm a little bit of an odd candidate for that because I'm a little bit of a Grinch, you know. Not a big, I'm not a big Christmas guy to the eternal just frustration of my family. I'm not big on lights outside the house. I'm not big on lights inside the house. I'm not big on lights on top of the SUV. I'm not big on the reindeer nose on the front of the car, the antlers on the car. I'm not big on caroling. I'm not big on wassail, whatever that is. I'm not quite sure. I'm not big on Bing Crosby. I'm not big on the sweater parties. I'm, I'm not. Is that, did I just lose like 60% of you by saying that? I'm not huge on it. I'm just a big Grinch. What I am big on, though, is one year ending and another year beginning. And I don't know why, and I'm about to lose the other 40% of you, but I'm a little bit of a New Year's resolution dork. I have an app for it. I don't just set one resolution. I have like 15, and they're all measurable. This app that I use, I actually use two apps, and it tracks my progress through the year. I revisit these resolutions every quarter. And I tweak and I modify them to make sure that they're not too easy, but they're not too hard at the same time, right? I'm really big on just tracking that all the way through. Now, one thing that always happens this time of year for me, and maybe it's happening for you, whether you're big on New Year's resolutions or not, is I spend this time towards the back half of December kind of looking back and assessing the year that just finished, right? And then really forecasting the year that's about to come. I'm not always, and maybe you're with me, I'm not always excited about the year that just finished. I never quite get done what I thought I was going to get done. And I don't ever quite look like I hoped that I'd look. You know, I mean, maybe some of you are the same way, right? Some of you are, did you make as much money this year as you hoped that you'd make, right? Back in January when you're thinking about 2013, are you as fit as you thought you'd be, how did that resolution go, right? Did you read as many books as you'd hoped that you would have read by now, right? And what about that cute little Bible in a year reading program you started back in January? Did that die somewhere between Leviticus and Numbers? That's where all good reading projects go to die in the Bible, you know? <laughs> I mean, how, how about that, uh, that pattern sin that you swore this would be the year You'd put down whatever it was and not pick it back up. Or that perversion or that addiction that you'd hoped that by the time December came would be just a bad memory in the rearview mirror of your life, but it's not, right? Didn't you hope that by this time this year, you'd have had like a more, I don't know, lively prayer life, a more consistent prayer life, that your relationship with Christ would be just that much deeper? I know I did right? It's easy at the time of the year that we're in right now to look back and see that our life is kind of a mess. It can be kind of messy, right? I think what happens to me 
is sometimes when I look and see how big of a mess it's been this last year, it gives me not very much hope over the year that's about to come. I catch myself wondering, am I really going to love God more next December than I do this December? Am I really going to know more in the Bible? Am I going to pray more? Am I going to be able to relate to people better? I mean, am I going to be any different, right? This is why I think the Christmas message is relevant to all of us. This is where it becomes very relevant to me. Because the Christmas story begins with God coming into mankind's mess. And that's the perspective we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the manger. We're going to look at Jesus coming. But we're going to look at it through the lens of God coming as man to clean up mankind's mess. So look in John 1. We're going to just jump in. This is where we start to see God begin his crescendo as he pursues broken creation. And it says this in, and by the way, it'll be up on the screen if you don't have an app or a Bible. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, that's a little bit like reading a Rubik's Cube. I know it's what it feels like whenever I look at it. But I want you to pay attention to the words he's using. I mean, look how he's personifying Word. That's a capital W he's using there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was in fact God. And then he says this, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then when we jump down to verse 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now listen, there's some things that we want to get our arms around in this passage. One is that when God entered mankind, right, he entered mankind looking like mankind. I think we forget that sometimes. We forget that he was fully man, which I know John came and spoke on last week. That he was fully man. He looked like us. He had a dialect, right? He didn't speak with a British accent, all right? Probably had some pimples. Probably had hair coming out of his ear. Probably had some B.O. He was just a guy. He was fully man, right? He laughed with us. He ate with us. He hung out with us. He camped out with us. He walked among us. He was even tempted like all of us were tempted. He just didn't sin. God actually became flesh. He even became flesh through the same sloppy delivery system that we all became flesh through, right? He was born into the world. He came looking like us. He was fully man. I think when we see Christmas, we also see that Jesus arrived, but he was not really new on the scene. And this is a little bit harder to wrap our our minds around. Any of y'all ever listen to LL Cool J? Any LL Cool J fans in here? I grew up on LL Cool J. Yeah, Me and Paula, I bumped into him once at a conference in uh, Anaheim. I ran right into him. I was so starstruck. I ran into his bodyguard, actually. And all I could say is, LL. I said LL like I knew him on a first name basis. But I grew up on LL Cool J. He's the godfather of rap. And he's got about 15 albums. But closer towards the beginning of his career, in the early 90s, 1992, he came out with this song called Mama Said Knock You Out. Any big fans of that song? Mama Said Knock You Out? All right, okay. The first line of that song, the first phrase in that song, pretty much marked him. And it was this. Don't call it a comeback. No, you messed it way up, Sam. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years, right? Because this is cardinal sin in the rap industry to ever be irrelevant. He could not have been forgotten about. So he's basically announcing to everybody, don't call this a comeback. I've always been around, right? With Jesus, he shows up on the scene, but he'd always been around. It's not a new arrival for him. 
He'd always been around. He was co-eternal with God. He was God, and he was with God, it says in John, right? This is important for us because we see Christmas, and we see brand new baby, spanking brand new baby, and we think Jesus is brand new. Oh, look, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. He just showed up. Welcome, Jesus. God's always been doing something, but it's good to have you around, Jesus. Thanks for coming. But the thing is, is he'd always been co-eternal with God. Look at Hebrews 1. And notice we've gone from John 1 to Hebrews 1, and later we'll have Colossians 1. If you struggle with the idea of God becoming man, those are three chapters you should always read together. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. That's, it's easy to remember because it's the first chapter of those three books. You should read those at the same time, and it'll really help you understand what, what it means for God to become flesh. It says this in Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. So it was through Jesus that he created the world, which means that Jesus was there before there was a beginning. In fact, he was before the beginning because there is no beginning to him. Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, which we're about to talk about. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Later on, it's going to say that he binds all things together or that he keeps all things together. After making purification for sins, when that's what he did on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now I want you to really remember that word begotten. Super important for us today begotten. What we see in this is that it was through God the Son, Jesus, that all of creation was made and is now upheld. The reason the Son comes up when it does where it does and goes down when it does where it does is because God holds it all together through Jesus, his Son. All right? We don't ever think about that. We just think that God does all of it. Yes, God does that, but it's through God the Son that he does it. All right? I think we see, a, I think we see manger. And we're tempted to think that because Jesus is showing up, He's lesser than God because he came after God. God has always been around. He created all of creation, the multiverse. God is big. He has no beginning. But we see a little baby coming in a manger through a virgin, and we think Jesus starts. So since Jesus came a little bit after God, he must be lower than God. Most people, typically Americans, Christians in America, if you ask them who is the boss between God and Jesus, they will all say God. But they're co-eternal. They're co-eternal. Jesus is not less than God. He is God, right? You see, it, it is true. Jesus was born, but he was not created. He was begotten. Jesus was not made. He was begotten. And in that is a very, very big difference. Huge difference. This is what C.S. Lewis says on that. He says, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man, right? So I have my son, my 12-year-old son here. He is my begotten son. He is fully man by virtue of the fact that I am fully man. He shares that essence with me, right? But my wife and Kevin and some of the artists that are in the room right now, you've created things. You've made things, but those aren't begotten. Those are made. Those aren't human, 
They don't share the same essence. You might actually see an artist through their work. You might look at a piece of artwork, a statue or a painting. I'm able to pick a few paintings out just by looking at them. I could almost tell you what the artist is or who the artist is on some of them. But that, that piece of artwork is not the artist. So the very fact that Jesus is begotten from God proves that he is fully God. Just as much as my son is begotten from me proves that he is fully man. That's how this works. So Jesus did enter mankind as a baby, but he had no beginning. That's important to remember. Not only is this manger scene, the virgin, the baby, the shepherds, not not only is this scene symbolic of God entering mankind's mess, it's also important to see that this is a time where God enters mankind's mess right at the right time. The timeliness of it. When time had been pregnant and full, and then it gave birth. When time had been filling and filling and filling, and then became full. When time was ready, God entered mankind with flesh, looking like us, living among us. It's very important. This is why it says in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So time was full. Time was ready. It wasn't rushed. God wasn't panicked. He wasn't tapping his foot wondering when it was going to happen. He wasn't slow. He wasn't lax. It happened right on time. The time that he counseled himself on. The brilliance of the planning that went behind it. I think for most of us, this is where we stop when we see Christmas. Right? This is when the credits roll for us. Camera zooms out, right? You see some crusty shepherds. They're all covered with dirt and mud and poo. And you've got these, they all got like pastel clothes on too, don't they? And then you've got the magi who are dressed like circus clowns. And they're all spread out and there's gifts everywhere. They weren't even there, by the way, okay? It was years later before they were there. You got the magi that were there. And you've got all the oxen and the sheep and the little scenes. And they're all well-behaved, aren't they? None of them's just squatting or anything like that or crawling over each other or doing anything weird. They're all in their proper pens looking at the proper way. And there's always angels there. And you always see a very scared and, and sweaty Joseph and Mary holding up this beautiful baby that has no dirt or blood on it or anything like that. But this perfectly clean baby like out of a Hallmark. <laughs> and you have this shaft of light, the singular shaft of light coming down from the star that is way too low, right? So we see this scene and it's very symbolic and then the credits roll. And that's it. Hope to the world. Merry Christmas. And that becomes Christmas to us. I will tell you, it's incomplete. Because God did not not enter man's mess. He did not enter creation to be a baby in our mess. And he didn't enter our mess to mock us in our mess or to abandon us in our mess. He didn't enter our mess just to hang out with us in our mess. He entered our mess to cleanse us from our mess, to remove the mess from us. This is important for us to see. This is what redeems Christmas, right? It's what redeems it for us. It's only in the life, death, and life of our King Jesus that Christmas even makes sense. A manger makes absolutely no sense without a cross. It's important for you to remember A manger makes no sense. It's nonsensical without a cross. And those two things are nonsensical without an empty tomb, right? I think whenever we celebrate Christmas, 
with a partial setting, with a partial idea, it could be impartial at best and secular at worst, when it all becomes about the manger, right? Because whenever I'm shopping or I'm going around the city and I hear the Black Eyed Peas or Cindy Lauper or whoever singing some Christmas carol about Silent Night or We Three Kings, and I understand what the lyrics mean, they have no clue that they're in that picture, in the picture of that Christmas carol or that song, is a crushed king on a cross who rose triumphantly from a tomb who is coming back again. That's all inherent in it. Christmas is very partial now. But we have very good understanding of why God came through a manger, through a virgin, to humanity. First John talks about this, right? And this isn't going to be on the screen because it's going to be ultra fast. But in the third chapter of First John, we see John tell us the two reasons why Christ came. He says that God appeared... God appeared in Jesus. God appeared to take away our sins. That's one. That's in verse 5. To remove our sins and then to defeat the enemy. Right? The two reasons that Christmas is even Christmas, the two reasons that we're even celebrating this time of year that we do is because God came as man to take sins away from humanity and God came as man to defeat the enemy of our souls. That's so important for us. That's Christmas redeemed. That a baby came to a destroyed people who would in fact turn around and destroy that very same savior that god would enter mankind's mess and that same mess would turn around and make a mess of him that god would enter humanity and we wouldn't be found behaving we'd be found misbehaving in a moral sewer of sorts and he would come and behave perfectly because we misbehave and because he behaved perfectly he brings us into union and into adoption with god's family in fact he came and it was his physical body that was destroyed crushed persecuted, chastised. It was his physical body that underwent the treatment that it did so that our physical body could be resurrected, redeemed, and glorified. And that's an important part. We we probably shouldn't neglect this. It's probably an important note for us today. Whenever Jesus was pulled down from the cross, it was his physical body. It was a real death. He was a real corpse. What that means is, is he wasn't swooning. He wasn't faking it. He wasn't putting on a good act for everybody. He didn't pass out. Nothing like that happened. He was really dead. No breath, no pulse, no life. He was pale. He was heavy. They pulled him down from the cross. They put him in the tomb. That night he was a corpse. The next morning he was dead. All day he was dead. That night he was dead. He was dead. It was his physical body, his fully manness that was taken away by our hands. Now, when God brought him back and resurrected him, it was his physical body brought back and resurrected. He wasn't a spirit. He was a full body. Why is that important? Because he's the firstborn for all of us. Whenever our bodies are resurrected, if you are in fact a son or a daughter of Christ, if you are in fact a Christian, whenever our bodies are resurrected, you will have physical bodies. We always imagine ourselves like in a spirit or something, right? Like we just waft around the room. But I mean, look at your hands. You're going to be physical. You will be physical people with real eyes and hands and hair. You will be physical glorified and you will appear as if sin never had an effect on you that's how you will look you will appear as if sin never even touched your body this is so important it says in colossians 1 and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning born from the dead that's where we get that he's the firstborn from the dead firstborn of who of his church what does that mean It means that whenever your physical body is resurrected, you will have no need for contact lenses or braces for your teeth or braces for your knee, right? No more Medicaid, no more medical school. 
No more insurance premiums, no more decaf, no more artificial sweeteners, right? College football will have an eight-game playoff system. All things that have sin will be removed. Creation will be recovered. This is important for us to see. Now, here's a question that pastors get a lot around Christmas, around Easter, around Good Friday. Did Jesus descend into hell? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that, that there was a point in time where, see, some of you are like, I've never heard that. That sounds crazy. Some of you have grown up hearing it. Raise your hand again, so just so I know who I'm talking to, that you've heard that. Yeah, isn't that nuts? That Jesus descended into hell. So it's been commonly taught. Actually, it's not been commonly taught. It's been commonly assumed. I will say it that way. That in between the time where Jesus was crucified on the cross and the time that he rose again with a physical body, that he descended into hell to take care of some kind of business we're never really quite sure We just know that three days later he shows up, he's Jesus, right? And we just assume that he did something. Let me tell you, that is not true. This is a good time to make that clear. That is is not a true teaching. There's no accuracy to that at all, right? Where do we get that? We don't get that from the Bible. That teaching that he descended into hell is not from the Bible. It's actually from a creed, right? A creed called the Apostles' Creed that actually finds its roots close to the time where the apostles lived. So what's a creed? A creed is basically like a statement of beliefs. You know, our website, other churches' websites, they have a statement of beliefs. These are things that we believe as a church, right? We believe that Jesus was fully of God. We believe that the Bible is fully inspired in all of its ways. We, we, these are things that we hold with a closed fist, things that define us, things that are very important to us. Why do we have those? Because there's all kinds of weird teachings and weird beliefs that creep in from every different way, and that is the way that we define who we are systematically, theologically. Well, way back in the day when heresy, you know, as we've been going through the book of Galatians, many of you have seen how easy it is for heresy to get into the church. So these church fathers, these church planters, these various pastors that were influential, like regional directors, I guess, would come together and they would form a creed. And it would be this codified, distilled set of beliefs that say, this is who we are in the face of all weird teaching and every clown out there that's teaching whatever they want. This is what we feel like is important. This is our banner, right? It's the Apostles' Creed. This is where we get this. Some of you have heard this creed from a song back in the 90s, Rich Mullins. Have any of y'all ever heard that song? Wrote a song called Creed. Someone's going to town on a dulcimer in the background, and he's singing this creed. He just sings it from front to finish, and this is what it sounds like. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Do you see how it's tracking? Small little bits of info, right? All codified, all systematic, all something that you could die for. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. Then it says he descended into hell. The third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, on and on and on it goes. It actually says that. He descended into hell. Let me just say that just because it's in a creed that's old, it doesn't mean that it's accurate. That was a mistake then, it's a mistake now, right? In fact, that phrase, he descended into hell, that didn't even show up until 300 years later in the 300s. That's when we see that. And and it showed up because this creed is a little bit different. Most creeds, all the contributors, the pastors and the directors and the leaders, they would all sign off on the contribution that they made. There would be this moment where they could just shut the book and say, this is the creed, it's not to be messed with. It's finalized and we all agree on it. This one, the apostles, different. It's different from the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. It's different from those creeds. This one just kind of evolved 
And it shifted around, and chunks were taken out, and chunks were stuck back in. It'd be like a snowball rolling down a hill, right? Something would fall out, another thing would kind of fall back in. In the 300s, that part where it says dead and buried was taken out. It, was, it just fell out. And so this guy, this theologian put in, he descended into, and that word is supposed to be rendered, dirt or grave. Because there's nowhere in that creed for it. It just said he was crucified. So this guy said, I guess I'll put in there. He, he descended into the grave. The thing is, is the word for grave is the same word for hell. That word can render both earth or dirt or grave, or it could render hell. So he just put it, but then it disappeared for 300 more years. In the 600s, it appeared again, but someone stuck back in dead and buried. Now it has both phrases, right? So now it's an error. It was an error then, and it's an error now. And what we've done is we've taken three or four shady, difficult passages, right, that do have great interpretations, but we've bent them inward to, to try to teach this weird teaching that Jesus might have gone down there to preach to sinners in the time of Noah or to teach the demons or preach the gospel to people that were locked up in some sort of a prison. Folks, that's highly inaccurate. None of that happens. It is easy for heirs to make their way through history and people just believe because people have always believed them, right? One of the biggest bubs I have is the phrase ATM machine. Because the M stands for machine. Automatic teller machine machine has always been something that's bothered me. People don't bother me that say it. The phrase bothers me. Now, if I started this cool 501c3 and came up with a website that I was going to educate the region on how you didn't need to say machine and made a big deal about it, people wouldn't even care, first of all. But second of all, they would just continue to say it. Why? Because that's the way they've always said it. Why do you say ATM machine? Well, because that's the way I've always said it. Don't you know that, that M stands for machine? Well, yeah, but I'm still going to say it. That's what this creed is doing, right? Why do you say that Jesus descended into hell? I don't know. It's just what I've always heard. Where did you hear it? I'm not quite sure. Can you find it in the Bible? Mm, probably not. I probably can't find that in the Bible. Well, we should write a song about it. Put a dulcimer in it, right? Rich Mullins did. It's actually in the song if you listen to it. He's got that phrase in the song. These are some things I'd submit to you to prove, to prove that he did not descend into hell, right? He said three things from the cross. He said, it is finished, right? It is finished. What's finished? Think about it. What's finished? His suffering. His work. His suffering to clean sins from us, to trade places with us, to remove sin from mankind. That was finished. No more suffering. No more work. He didn't descend into some chamber, dark, secret place of hell to preach to some random group of people that were all locked up, and we don't even know why, to give them like a second chance. That's not even in the Bible. In fact, that's highly unbiblical. That never happened. What did he also say? And what did he say to the thief on the cross? He said, today you will be with me in paradise, right? Father, into your hands do I hear it. These are things that he said. You get the distinct idea that to be absent on earth is to be present with God. You get the distinct idea that he, when he left, when his body died, his spirit rose, he was with God until God resurrected his body, rejoining his body with his soul, with his permanent being, and he became glorified before all mankind. That's what you get the idea from, right? So where is he right now? Christ is at God's right hand, triumphantly ruling and reigning a kingdom that is expanding, getting deeper, getting wider, getting brighter, 
as the time approaches, enter in a glorious and dramatic way. He is coming again. I'm going to look at another passage, another Christmas passage right here, Revelation 19. It'll be up on the screen, or you can find it in your Bible. This is not one that you'll hear Bing Crosby sing about or Elvis. I'm pretty sure Johnny Cash is saying. It's got a couple songs on it, though. It says this in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is, look at that, the Word. Same capital W, same person, same Jesus, right? The Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean a physical sword is coming out of his mouth? I mean, maybe, but probably not, right? With that, it's, that's a word of authority. He's going to speak with authority. There's going to be executive power to the words that he over all the kingdoms of the world. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hear this, the very first time that God entered humanity, our mess, the very first time he did that was through the frail frame of a baby, but the second time he enters the mess of humanity, it will be with the victorious frame of a king. But he enters a mess, nonetheless, just like he did in the beginning. Jesus actually talks quite a bit in the Gospels about what the world looks like, how messy it really gets before he comes back the second time, right? You read things like wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and dads turning on their kids and kids turning on their parents, and you just get the feeling that everything is spinning wildly out of control. Do you ever catch yourself today just asking, God, when are you coming back? It feels like things are spinning out of control. I do. I always wonder sometimes. I mean, sometimes I just take a good glance at the front page of whatever news site, and you just got to ask yourself, my goodness, typhoons, wars, rumors of wars, school shootings, North Korea acting like North Korea. I mean, you just ask, God, are you coming back anytime soon? This is so much weird stuff. Everything's upside down. Creation is just odd. It's obviously broken. Are you coming back on a horse with a sword and a tattoo? Are you coming back? He is. When? The answer? When he feels like it, when time is ready, when time is pregnant but pregnant no longer, when time has been filling and filling just like, just like when he came the first time and then becomes full, when time is ready, he finds us in a mess, he finds us right at the right time. In Second Peter, this is why it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you. He's not slow as some count slowness. He's patient, but we don't really believe that, do we? I don't. Sometimes I just think he's slow, tardy, right? Wow, God, are you still not going to be here? Am I still going to have to wait for this? Don't you see the pain? Don't you see the hurt? I mean, what, what could be a better time than now, right? Now, why does all this matter for us today? That was a lot of teaching, a lot of theology, 
a little bit of history. Why does all of this matter today for you this Christmas season? I think it's important to know that you serve a king, that you serve a king who is highly skilled, you serve a king who is good at, who has made a purpose of, you serve a king who has actually made a, a good habit of entering our messes at just the right time. That's his M.O. That's what we see. This is what Christmas celebrates. Jesus did not simply enter this dirt-encrusted, mud-encrusted manger. He actually entered a dirt-encrusted humanity, a perversion-encrusted, an addicted, we're murderers, we're rebels, and he entered us. He didn't just enter a world spinning, and when he comes back, he will not just enter a world spinning out of control. He's going to enter an entire creation that has been breaking under the weight of Adam's sin. That's what we see. I want you to see the M.O. of God. This is his mode. This is his method. He finds us misbehaving. When God finds us individually, when he finds us corporately, he finds us misbehaving. That's how he found me. He found me addicted. He found me perverted. He found me dirty. He found me rebellious. That's how he finds us. He doesn't find us cleaned up. I mean, the gospel story of a living, dying, and living again God, that's only a story for the messy. (laughs) That's only a story for the dysfunctional. Listen, the gospel is only really a functional story for those who look at their life and they see the depth of their sin and the depth of their miscues, and then they look at God and they see the depth of God's grace. Listen, if you don't have any problem, the gospel's not really a story for you. If you find yourself not messy, if you find yourself starched and put together with your shirt tucked in in a spiritual way, if you find yourself put together and in no need of a Savior, no need of a Savior, then no Savior will come. The gospel is a story for the highly dysfunctional. That's the mode. That's how he finds us. That's how he came into the manger. That's how he will come back. That's how he finds us. He finds us highly screwed up. So as as I tie this up, I want to ask you, what mess are you into today? What mess are you into today? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What is it, how long has it been gnawing at you? How has it been waking up with that same black cloud over your head that has always been there, chasing you, mocking you? How long has that mess been around in your family's life? How long have other people seen the mess? I'll bet we have some marriages in here with some dings in them. I bet we have some marriages in our church people who aren't even here that have some dings in them. Feels like a mess, doesn't it? I bet we have some people in here who aren't even sure what God has called them to do. They have a compass with no needle. They don't know what God has gifted them for. They don't know which direction God has called them. It feels like a dysfunctional mess. They have no idea what they're supposed to do. I'll bet we have some people in our church, even in this city, that feel so dysfunctional, that feel so dirty, so perverted, so addicted, and so wrong that the idea of a perfect king coming anywhere near them escapes them totally. It's out of the realm of possibility. Right? I bet we do. I want you to be shocked. I want you to be shocked at how close God really does come to us who are messy. That needs to shock you. Peter says God is not slow as we count slowness. But we do. We think he's slow, don't we? 
We're in our mess, swimming in our mess, begging God, appealing to God, pleading to God, will you please come? I've been trusting you forever. I don't know what else I could do. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. But our version of trusting and waiting on God's patience is us waiting until it hurts and then taking it into our own hands, grabbing our own mop, scrubbing around with our own mop because we're tired of waiting on God. The whole time saying God is tardy and he's aloof. I'll fix it myself. God's not showing up. That's the limitations of our trust. That's also what we call legalism. That's also what we call atheism, functional atheism. Whenever we just take things into our own matter, because God's actually not going to show up at all. We just don't like, I don't like, I don't like to be in places where only God can move. I hate that. I hate feeling that out of control. I want to be in places where it'll be nice if God moves, but I could actually take care of it myself a little bit too. You know what I mean? like to have some, some control. Give me some control. We don't like to wait on God. And I think many of you have been in your mess for quite some time wondering when, God, for, for the love of Pete, when are you going to come and rescue me from this sewer that I'm in? Rescue me from these thoughts that I keep having? Rescue me from the fear of God in my heart? Rescue me from the sins? Rescue me from the, the, everything? When are you going to do it? Here's the answer for you. When he's ready. <laughs> it's the same mode. God doesn't really change when he's ready. When time has been filling and filling and filling and then becomes full. When God's patience has run its course and then he executes. He moves. All right? That's when he does it. Well, Luke, why does he wait so long to, to help me with this mess? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And for him to come any earlier would be outside of the counsel of his own brilliance. It would be a move outside of love for you. It would be less than love for you. And that's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. That's a totally different sermon. But I do want to encourage you, as you finish one year, and as you enter another, I want you to be encouraged that you serve a God, if in fact you serve a God, you serve a God who will come to you without you having to clean up your mess. He will find you even if you're knee deep, waist deep, neck deep in your mess. That's how he finds you misbehaving. I mean, isn't that a newsflash? How does he find us initially? He saves us when we are at our worst. It is when we are at our worst and most depraved and sin-encrusted state that he finds us and replaces us with the perfect life of his son. That's when he finds us, not looking for us to be perfect. He finds us very imperfect, and that's how he continually finds us. It's important that we get that. Because I think a lot of us struggle in our intimacy because we think we got some cleaning to do before God will show up anywhere near us. I, I, I was praying this morning. I've been a pastor for 16, 17 years now. A Christian for not much longer than that. This morning I was praying and I caught myself starting my prayer because I've been feeling like I've not really been connected to God like I want to be the last several days. I mean, it's just, as much as I'm a humbug about Christmas, I mean, I've got the same busyness that all of you do who love Christmas, Right? And so I go through it and I find myself not connecting with God. So the first thing I did when I started praying, even this morning, is go, God, I'm so sorry. I've not been praying. I know that's something I've got to work on. You know what I was doing? I was trying to clean up my manger to make room for God so he'll finally show up. And that's what we do through legalism, through I'm, I need to start showing up to church. I need to start giving. I need to start doing good things. I need to go get a Max Lucado book. I need to, you know, go get a John Piper book. I need to get the right Bible version. I need to start showing up to... What are we doing? We're cleaning up our manger a lot of times. Sheep over here. 
ox over in fact get the animals out of here because they stink bring in some mop and glow we're going to put in some sun lamps we're going to put in we're going to make this place more beautiful hey we got a manger to clean why because we need to make room for god a king's coming folks he showed up to a nasty manger he showed up to a mess and it wasn't just a mess it was full of messy rebellious people and that's how he's going to come again by the way and that's how he found you by the way so if you find yourself there now today, he is right there. He is that close. There's nothing more for you to clean. Stop rearranging your manger to make room for God. It's when God shows up in your mess that he helps you, that he works through you to clean up the things that he is interested in you cleaning up. Amen? It's more of an encouragement today. I just want to encourage you on that today. I know how the end of the year can be. Okay? I tell you, let's go ahead and stand up. I'm going to pray for you guys, and we'll, we'll move on through the service. If you're new here, um, or you've not come very often, as Kevin explained earlier, we reserve the, the, the fatter part of our musical worship to be on the tail end of the service, because we want to give you guys time. We want to build in time for you to respond. I mean, God is provoking some of you. Some of you have been provoked. Provoked. I went to Texas Tech. Some of you have been provoked. <laughs> I think some of you have walked in here feeling too messy to even walk in here, if you know what I mean. Some of you have felt so dysfunctional and so outside of the gate that even walking in here was a challenge. Even getting dressed this morning to come here was a challenge for some of you, right? I've been there. I know what it, I know what it feels like, right? Let me just encourage you that God is ever-present. He is very excited about you. He's very excited about you. In fact, he, He's so excited about you that he didn't just send his son, he became man for you, fully man and fully God. And he lived the perfect life and he traded that perfect life for your very imperfect one. He did that for you.